This podcast is a part of the Carbon Almanac Network of Podcasts. Hi, I'm Christina. I'm from Prague. Hi, I'm Jen, and I'm from Canada. Hi, I'm Ola Banji, and I'm from Nigeria. Hello, I'm Liki, and I live in Paris. Hi, I'm Brian, and I'm from New York. Welcome to Carbon Sessions, a podcast with carbon conversations for every day with everyone from everywhere in the world. In our conversations, we share ideas, perspectives, questions, and things we can actually do to make a difference. So don't be shy and join our Carbon Sessions because it's not too late. Hello again, I'm Liki, and you're listening to Carbon Sessions. Today we're presenting the final part of our conversation that we recorded in 2022 with Josh Spodek, a leader in environmental advocacy and personal change, who got a segment in The Daily Show because he went off-grid living in Manhattan. You can listen to the previous episode to find out all about the story of him living off-grid. As we concluded this series, Josh takes us through his innovative approaches to addressing climate change and how he emphasizes the power of individual actions and leadership in the fight against global environmental issues and climate change. I think this is beautiful, and and we're we're that's what conversations are all about is figuring out and finding out where they go. You know, I think a lot of what you're talking about in this example of this executive and sort of his resistance, maybe having conversation about how to think about things, but then you sort of like maybe without his awareness leading him down this pathway, speaks a little bit to I think something that seems to underlie so much of your your writing and your leadership is behavior change and pattern change. And, you know, even the term, you know, the sustainable life, like it's about changing those patterns. And, and you recently had a fabulous podcast interview with, with Holly Whitaker, the, the author of a book, Quit Like a Woman, that explores her pathway to forego alcohol or rather live a sober lifestyle. And, and in that interview, you, you dig a lot into the correlation between alcohol addiction and our addiction to fossil fuels, or, or maybe rather our addiction to the belief that the things we can derive from fossil fuels, faster this, cheaper that, easier that, is itself an addiction, an addiction to that feeling and belief that, that life will be easier or better. Can you share some thoughts on like this idea of behavior change and, and that mindset change and, and the correlation over to other kinds of addictions where when we step back, you know, Holly refers to alcohol as sort of like our modern day cigarette, right? And can you step back and help us think about our patterns and behaviors as, as in our lives and how those are themselves addictions and how we might consider changing those behaviors? Yeah, there's lots of definitions of, of addiction, and I don't claim to be an addiction specialist, but... A lot of it is that it's something around choosing something you know has long-term uh, adverse effects for the short-term reward and maybe some attempt to try to stop and inability to stop. A lot of people connect them with 
chemicals like drugs and alcohol and, and nicotine, the, the specialists recognize things like gambling and some, we'll say video game addiction and social media, different experts will qualify these things as, as addictions as well. And when you're addicted, you know, you make these choices that you wouldn't otherwise, and it's very difficult to get out. Someone who's addicted to heroin, if you suggest to them that you'll, you'll enjoy, enjoy life more, earning an honest living, sleeping regularly, exercise, eating healthy, they're going to compare that to the jolt of pleasure that they get that works every time. And they're going to look at the withdrawal and say, no way am I going to do that. That, that sounds square and I don't want to live that way. This is, this is a better life. Now, somewhere deep inside, maybe they feel otherwise. But it's very difficult to, I mean, if, a, if the person who's addicted has not themselves said, I'm addicted and I want to change, the big thing is to get them to where they say that themselves. So I wanted to talk to people who are experts in addiction. And in Holly's case, she drank a lot of alcohol and then stopped. And then her book, I highly recommend because whether you've been addicted to alcohol or not, so much of what she says rings true and so much of her attitude is so like she talks about how alcohol was such a positive thing in her life until it wasn't and her how do i put it outrage at the world at a system around us which says i mean it's normalized and made even adorable. Like, you, have you ever seen like the shirts that say like, mommies drink champagne or Chardonnay because babies cry? Or I, I, They have these cute little phrases and stuff. And she was seeing like how much society condones this. And even their attempts to, to hold things back, drink responsibly. The first word is drink responsibly. The adverb modifies it. They're still saying drink. <laughs> That's the way of like reducing drinking is to say drink. And our world is like that. And she goes through and I mean, she eventually learned about how alcohol, what it does to the to the body, and what it does to a culture, and things like that. And 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 the book is really engaging. Mm -hmm. So I really wanted to have her on. She she's as engaging in conversation. So how do we, if we're addicted to things that fossil fuels bring? I mean, most people, if I propose to them avoiding packaged food, they, I mean, I used to have ice cream in my freezer always. I just always had ice cream in the freezer. I always had Snyder's of Hanover pretzels in my cupboard mm. because I loved them and I couldn't think of going without them. And I always thought oh, I'm eating too much of this stuff, but when I finished the package, I'd get another one. Mm. Now those things are disgusting to me. Like I, there's not enough money in the world to get me to get me to eat a spoon of ice cream. It's just not, in a, not going to happen. Mm. I've just, it's, I mean, it really, it goes to the disgust center of my brain. Mm. And she had that too. And but I got to tell a story that's not about Holly. I mean, definitely read her book if you're trying to see how you can get around to change your behavior to where it's something where you feel like, I know this is hurting others. I know it's hurting myself, but I can't stop myself. When we do something we know is wrong, we convince ourselves why it's not. And we suppress the part of us that says otherwise. But I got to tell the story about one time I was walking through Washington Square Park, which is around the corner from me. It's sort of my backyard. And I pick up litter every day. And since the pandemic, when the heroin, meth, fentanyl, and crack addicts started really populating the northwest corner of Washington Square Park, which is supposed to be you know, a really desirable area in the world, but it's, I mean, there are encampments of, of people and, and fentanyl and meth, people who use this stuff just 
throw garbage everywhere. So I told myself, I'm not going to retreat from this. I go pick up at least three pieces of litter in Washington Square Park just to make sure I'm there and the people see me caring and acting. And so I'm going to pick up litter. And there's one particular day I'm walking through and there's not a lot of people around. But when I go pick up something, this guy sees me and he says, thank you. And he's a construction worker. He's wearing one of those bright yellow vests, somehow off duty. He's holding onto the helmet. And I don't know what he's doing there, but we get to talking and I start talking to him about why I pick this stuff up. And I say, you know, it's nice to pick up the litter, but what it really does is it helps reinforce not to buy packaged food. And I tell him about how, you know, at that point, I'm maybe two, two and a half years into one load of garbage. And he's like, wow, that's amazing. And I also say how one of the outcomes of this is that by eating fresh fruit all the time, I can eat as much as I can stuff down my throat because it's all low caloric density. You know, you can't eat that much. I mean, you can't get fat eating spinach. So, and he says, well, I wish I could do that, but I can't. And he indicates that he's obese and he points to his belly and he's like, I can't do it. There's nothing, you know, I'm too far gone. I'd like to be able to eat that way, but I can't. So I point him over there at the meth and fentanyl people and they're out of earshot, but we can see them. And I say, you know, those people over there are addicted to fentanyl and meth and things like that. And he goes, yeah, I know. And I say, I talk to them. And they tell me that they can't stop what they're doing. Can they? And he looks at me and you can see the gears start turning. And he says, you're right, I can stop. I didn't tell him he could stop. I asked him if they could. And they, you know, I think he knows that they can. And I think he knew that he was using the same excuses that they were. And then a funny thing happened. He gets out some money from his pocket and he's like, take this. And he hands me a $20 bill. I'm like, no, what, I, what are you talking about? He goes, take this. I'm like, no, I'm not going to take your money. I don't need it. And he goes, it will be more valuable to me, the lesson, if you take this money from me. I'm like, if this benefits you, fine, I'll take it. And I'll give it to some worthy cause. And he goes, no, no, spend it on yourself. Enjoy it. So now the intellectual awareness that you can stop is different than being able to stop. To being able to stop and, you know, people... Go, they stop and then they, they, they're in recovery and then they, they what's, the, what's the word, they, not remission, when they go back again and, you know, it, it's a cycle. It's, it's difficult. It's challenging. It helps a lot to have role models. It helps a lot to have support, you know, giving people facts, telling a smoker, here's what happens to your lungs or a drinker, here's what happened to your liver. It's not nearly as effective as being a role model, showing support, non-judgmental support, compassion. But really having gone through it yourself is a really big aid. Giving people facts and numbers, not going to help, not going to hurt. I mean, that helps after they've changed. But getting them to where they choose to change, that's a much different, facts and numbers don't help that. I mean, they're not going to hurt. And sometimes there's someone who's ready to hear it and that fact might be just at, at just the right time. But much more about emotional support, listening, listening to understand, going, you know, meeting them where they are, things like that. And having done it yourself, that's, I mean, that's why I'm unplugging is, is not for, yes, for the individual thing. Yes, because I don't want to pollute other people, other people's air and water and, and, and world. And if you look at, I mean, ugh, it's heartbreaking to see the pictures of, say, Ghana, where, where a lot of e-waste goes, or just the mountains of garbage in other places. And people look at that and say, well, they should have better sanitation. I'm like, well, who's profiting from that? 
that's that's where I you know I want to go to the boardrooms of the people who decide to extract and form the plastic and things like that. Mm. Now that's not to say you know that's not the only thing to do. We have to stop ourselves. I certainly support Extinction Rebellion and 350.org for protesting and things like that. But something that I saw missing was how do we lead the most influential people with the biggest delta possible? Yeah, we got to do it ourselves first. Got to walk the walk. Yeah, and find the joy in it. I mean, th there's nothing in me that is, oh, what a burden, what a chore. I'm so deprived. What a sacrifice. I mean, except in the sense of, of you know, I've had a bunch of religious people on the podcast. Mm. I've had evangelicals, mm -hmm. Trump supporters, hardcore red state politicians, CEOs of very polluting companies. And there's the reason I mentioned this was in the... In the Certainly in the evangelical community, the word sacrifice is a very mm -hmm. positive thing. So I do sacrifice in that sense, or the Michael Jordan sense. Like he's, he was the first one there and the last one to leave from every practice. Was he sacrificing? I think he really enjoyed mm -hmm. it. And so in that sense, I'm sacrificing if there's a noble part of it or sacrifice if, if, if people who leave the party early to go home and they have to feed their dog or walk their dog or take care of their kids. That's not sacrifice. Mm -hmm. in, in, I mean, it is, but it isn't. So in that sense, yes, I am because it's very rewarding, but it's not, I'm not giving anything up. In fact, I, I wish that I had started earlier and had not bought into the social cultural beliefs of what you do doesn't matter and all those lies to support. Here, I looked at the quote, Abraham Lincoln, nothing is more damaging to you than to do something that you believe is wrong. Mm. That's where the, that's where, that's where the, the, the internal conflict and right. corruption begins yeah it's this this theory of cognitive dissonance where like your actions and your beliefs are are in contrary alignment but then you start to as as you talk about in many of your writings and things start to like just convince yourself why the actions you did do are actually the right ones after all and this idea of sort of like explaining it to yourself afterwards that we all do you know that's one of the powers of our brain is to help soothe that dissonance with with a new explanation a new a new response afterwards now there, there's this fabulous book by professor brian uh Wansink who digs into this concept the book was called mindless eating and he digs into this idea of choices made during like moments of consciousness where you're stepping and you're sort of in your what are my values what are my choices what am i i'm thinking about what i'm choosing to do and he focuses within the eating construct on what can you do in that moment of consciousness that will have influential impact that, you know, when you're in all those mindless moments, when you're just sort of going through your routines and just doing things, you know, you had a great little thing about talking with someone who, you know, is like, well, how do I give up these Keurig pods? And you're like, just try it. You know, what, how would you take, what are, what are your, some of your ideas that you might share with our listeners about actionable changes that they can make and commit to in, you know, quote unquote, moments of consciousness when they're stepping back and saying, okay, how, I want to lead a more sustainable life. What are things they can do in that moment of consciousness that are actionable, that can have a meaningful and positive, positive sustainable impact? Well, I got to with the Keurig one, I didn't say just, just try it. What happened with her was that was a reporter who did a story on me. And after mm -hmm. the story, she came back and said, I want to do this stuff. And what can I do? And no, she didn't say what she could do. She said, I don't really know what I can do about my Keurig cups. She, she had a Keurig machine at home 
Mm-hmm. And she was like, I don't know what to do. And I said, well, I can't say exactly what to do because I haven't solved that problem because I don't drink coffee. But I know the process is, you know, go, f- I forget exactly what I said, but something like see if you can go without for a week. And here's what I think will happen. And I, again, I can't say for sure. I think one is, it might be that you stop drinking coffee and you just don't need it anymore, in, in which case problem solved. It may be that you find another solution because people have been making coffee for long before Keurig machines were around and you'll figure out what other people have done. And I don't know, maybe it'll be something like some French press. And she says, oh, I have a French press. Someone gave it to me as a gift. It's in my closet. Okay, so here's how not to stop using Keurig, Keurig uh, single-use disposable stuff. Keep using them. Here's how to stop. Stop. (laughs) She had the solution right there. But as long as we, you know, if we are ever going to get a jet that can fly or an airplane that can fly across an ocean carrying a bunch of people, you know, I had the, the chief engineer of an electric plane company on, and it looks like it's never going to happen. If it's going to happen, there's like with, you know, maybe stopping over in Greenland, but then you have these huge constraints, but it looks like it'll never happen. But if it's ever going to happen, here's how not to get there. Keep flying with jet fuel. Hmm. It's like the worst thing to do to to get off of jet fuel is to keep using jet fuel and to keep supplying that system. Hmm. So in those moments of consciousness, when we recognize even someone who is heavily addicted to some of the most addictive stuff, so you know, a heroin user might might think they might have a moment of clarity where they think, "I really want to stop this." What do you do? I mean, in my case, it's this. If you have that mindset shift, you have to start a process of continual improvement and expect that it's going to take a while. I'm something like 10 years into genuinely, authentically acting on my values here. And I'm still, I'm still taking, I'm still filling up loads of garbage. I haven't gotten to zero yet. And it's, I'm, I'm going to be a long way off. But I hope that the next person can see that you can live in Manhattan and unplug from the electric grid and even if you think you can't make it past two days, you can still make it into the six month and make, who knows how much longer. I hope the next people can take maybe three years or one year to do what I've done in all this time. And I hope that, you know, one of my biggest hopes is that people will hear, you can unplug, over half the world lives in, in cities. And most people I would think would feel like I did on May 21st before I started this, can't be done. How would I even begin? What could be done? If a lot of people, or even if some people think you can do that, I want to try. That's the beginning of a movement. And you try and you fail and you try and you fail and you try and you fail and you try and you succeed and you bring someone else along the next time. But I think you have to start with intrinsic internal motivation. If it's extrinsic, oh, New York Times says I'm supposed to avoid straws. I don't think that's going to work. That's going to reinforce the feelings like when I hear someone say, here's one little thing you can do for the environment. Here's 10 little things you can do. I'm like, why say little? Mm. That implies you don't want to do it. No one says drinkless driving Mondays. No one says seatbelt Tuesdays. You say always drive. If you're going to drive, drive sober. Always. Not, not easier way into it. What I focus on is intrinsic motivation. What are the passions? What, when you think of moments of yourself in the environment that really matter on the beach and mountain in the forest with the pet at the park what are the emotions there act on those emotions Mm. it may lead you to do something really big people on my podcast have said i'm going to go vegan right now people have said i'm not i had one 
executive retired and she said, I'm not going to buy clothes for a year. Wow. I talked to her a couple of weeks into it and she not only was not buying clothes, she was getting rid of clothes that were in a closet that she didn't wear. And she was, even, <laughs> this is even funny. She was even going through her, seeing the simplicity that it brought to her life, the, the improvement to her life of getting rid of needless things. She was going through her Rolodex or whatever, you know, her, her computer Rolodex thing. And she was getting rid of contacts that weren't valuable wow. to her. And so, you know, if you look at my blog, you'll see, you'll see a bunch of stuff on the Spodic method. If you just listen to episodes of my podcast, that's, I really think the best, the best way to start is to find what's inside you that matters and act on that applied to the environment. That's not enough of a description of the Spodic method. <laughs> I would say values first and then acting on those values. And so like people digging into themselves to find in like, like what are my values? Right. And a lot of what you said is communicating to people that, Hey, what are your values when it comes to even the environment? Like, what are your values? And, and when you do that, then what next, what action are you going to take? And, you know, just take that action. So it's pretty amazing. And I want to clarify intrinsic values, not extrinsic. Cause if it's just like, I don't know, I want to do nice things for the world. Mm. That's not going to do it. That, you know, definitely act on those values, but if, for these, it has to be like in a moment when you're, I mean, when you're in the environment and it really changes you, you know, maybe it was that one time you're on the beach and the sun just hit the clouds in just that way, or sometime you're on a mountain and you climb it yourself or whatever, like, how do you feel then and there? And those emotions, act on those emotions most people, when I ask them what the environment means to them, almost across the board, their answer is what they read about, about how the environment is all falling apart and all this outrage. And then they start getting into how governments, corporations should change. And it's all, you know, it's become common that we show how much we care by expressing more and more outrage. But that's not their experience with the environment. That's their experience reading the news or watching videos. Actually, in the environment, it takes a while for people to get there for a lot of people until they do, and then it's they open up and it becomes really very meaningful. But so it's not just to say, oh, I'm so outraged, or I care about my kids. Of course you care about your kids, but that's separate from, you care about the environment before you had kids. It really takes a lot of, how do I put it? I mean, experience to really walk people through this getting them off of, how do I put it? You know, the cocktail party conversations where we show how much we care by our outrage, but it's not really, it's not, it's still focusing on everyone else should change, but I still, uh, uh, you know, but I shouldn't. Yeah. See, if I ask someone, do you feed your dog regularly? Do you change your baby's diaper? No one feels guilty if I ask them that. And I say, do you take into account how your pollution affects others? People are like, oh, stop making me feel guilty. I'm like, I'm not. If I ask you if you feed your dog, to me, it feels very similar. Why would we care more about our dogs than about people? Just because they're far away? Just because I feel like I can't make a difference? Of course, I can make a difference about, about my personal actions. So when we get to a point where when someone asks, you know, are, are you doing all you can? People feel like, oh, I'd like to do more. What more can I do? What, what more awesomeness can I bring to my life by 
caring more, acting more about people. Live and let live. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Leave it better than you found it. If I give up, I mean, for me, it doesn't feel like giving up anymore, but if I give up flying and in return, I get to live by the value of do unto others as you would have them do unto you, that trade is worth it. Because the contrary is doing what Lincoln saw was the worst thing you can do to yourself. And, and when you do it, the glory that comes with it, the, the, the feeling of oneness, of connection, of we're in this together, that's what being human means. It is not, I want to go to Machu Picchu. You can't stop me. I'm just going to go. My mom lives on the other coast. What else can I do? I have to go see her. That's a really hard problem that's really hard to solve. But the only way we can do it is by facing it. Speaking of, you know, like deep-seated change, but on big change, you know, one of the things that you've put forward is this idea of a constitutional amendment to, you know, here in the U.S. to actually ban pollution. And at one point during one of your sessions on this, you, you say, if a genie offered me the opportunity to just immediately have this constitutional amendment, which creates sort of a new law of the land in place, but without popular support, I wouldn't wish for that. And it, it feels like some of what you're saying here comes back to that concept of it has to come from a place of, of deep-rooted, internal, intrinsic. And you're almost speaking about the population itself as needing to like come to that place of perspective and our converse, conversation and our perspective around things to shift so that it's not weird and odd and problematic that a father and a daughter are picking up a piece of litter in a park and that people don't react. What are you doing? That's weird. That's crazy. But in fact, that's normal and celebrated and commonplace. And that big shift while we're on the topic of, of, of the constitutional amendment construct, you know, for, for our United States listeners, any words to share on that? I mean, it's, it's some really compelling thought work that you put into this. this construct. I am not interested in any action that is not a fair democratic process. And this really hit me. I was up at Columbia University's, and this is where I got my PhD. This Lamont Doherty is one of the big research centers there. And I was up there and, and giving a talk. And I was talking to one of the scientists, and the scientists were saying, we've got to get to these senators and tell them this stuff so that they can vote, blah, 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 you know, to, to vote on some legislation. And I'm like, you've got to get popular support. If you're trying to sneak around the public and say, look, we know what's right, and we're going to tell the senators what's right, and they're going to act despite the fact, despite if everyone's going around buying SUVs, the senators are going to go with the public. And if you try to go around that, well, you know, the oil companies are a lot better at it than you are. So everything has to come. And if you try to pass a law that, that, the, public, that the public doesn't want, like say prohibition, you, the public's going to go against it. That's going to work against you. The, so if you want to have, if we want to pass legislation for a carbon tax or pollution tax or various things like that, but we don't first get popular support. And, and how can you get popular support if you yourself are funding through buying the plane tickets and buying the plastic bottles and all that stuff? If you're funding the pollution, you're funding the opposition. 
So that's not going to work. You, we have to change ourselves first. That's why, that's why I describe government acting is the finish line of a marathon, which itself is then the beginning of an, a yet another marathon. But at least that one, you're going downhill instead of uphill. But the reading about Lincoln led me to see, you know, I started learning more about the passage of the 13th Amendment, which ended slavery. This is what the movie was about. The morning, they didn't know that it was going to, the movie Lincoln with Daniel Day-Lewis in an amazing acting role. And they didn't know it was going to pass, even the morning of. And it was, a talk about what's the opposite of bipartisan, polar, polarization. It was hugely, the, the issue of slavery was hugely divided. Uh, uh, there was a civil war, right? This is as, as, as Republican versus Democrat as you can get, although it switched back then. And I doubt you would find any politician today who would suggest repealing that amendment. I mean, talk about, I mean, 100% agreement. I mean, I'm sure there are a few people who'd say, let's bring back slavery. There are people like that, I guess. But I've never come across one. And You're right. I doubt any politician, no politician is going to get elected to office by saying, let's repeal the 13th Amendment. So one morning, unexpectedly, I just woke up and thought, Oh, and I also recognized, he described it as, I think, the king's solution. He realized that there had been decades, centuries of federal legislation, judicial interpretation. I mean, the Dred Scott decision I was reading about, I, I, I learned about in school, it said that Africans were never supposed to be citizens of this country. It's widely regarded as the worst Supreme Court decision of all. Mm -hmm. And, but that's what happens when you don't have popular support. Federal legislation, state legislation, mm. judicial interpretations, executive orders, even yeah. the Emancipation Proclamation, he recognized, would not endure past the war. It was a wartime act. I mean, it was stronger, but it was like an executive order. These things don't work when the population is split. But a constitutional amendment, I view as different than legislation. The Constitution is what constitutes America. And legislation follows our values. If we try to act, if we create legislation or create technology first and hope that that will change our values later, that backfires. The same technology in one set of values will have a different outcome than in a different set of values. I mean, the cotton gin is, is like my big example here. But Eli Whitney's cotton gin allowed more output for the same labor. That could mean less labor. It could have been less slavery. But the people who were using them didn't value less slavery. They valued more profit, more power. So they used it to get more power and is regarded as one of the major contributors to the Civil War. The same technology could have gone one way, but the values of the people wielding it, they didn't value that. They valued power and money. So I don't want a constitutional amendment. Like if someone said you could just get a constitutional amendment, then I know that most people in this country, including most environmentalists, would oppose, they would, they would continue doing what they were doing. So step one is go to the people. It's start with myself, start with ourselves. And if, if I don't want to do it, what am I going to, what, what, where am I going to get by passing a law that other people shouldn't do it when I'm still doing it? No one's going to vote for that. No senator is going to vote for that. No state is going to ratify that. Not when we're paying for the opposite. So we've got to change ourselves. But in, in the long run, I'm divided mm -hmm. right now as to whether to present it as, as 
a symbolic idea that, that we could strive for, or actually to say, let's get that amendment. Let's get to a place where our culture says that amendment makes total sense. To me, it does. It's crazy for a lot of people to think of a world where no one pollutes. And I've asked a lot of people, can you imagine? And I, you listening to me right now, just not just you guys, but everyone listening, can you imagine a world where nobody pollutes? Most people I say that I ask cannot imagine a world where nobody pollutes. They can, I mean, if they can, it's usually post-apocalyptic after some Mad Max outcome where we're living out of the dirt, which is actually, we did live without pollution up until, you know, roughly speaking around 17 and 1800. We use lead pipes, which would pollute, but by and large, we didn't pollute. And in that time, we went from something like a thousand individuals homo sapiens to just about a billion. Six continents living above the Arctic Circle, in that time finding anesthesia and septic systems and systems of hygiene. We got had the germ theory of disease. We don't have to leave any of that stuff up. And vaccines. So people think we have to return to the Stone Age to not pollute. That's, that's a failure of imagination. And that failure of imagination is one of the biggest problems. It, it may be our biggest problem. If you ask someone to pollute less, when they believe that the end result of polluting less is a dystopic hellscape or return to the stone age where mothers are dying in childbirth and 30 years old age and there's no hospitals and everyone's dying. If you get a cut, then you have to amputate because of gangrene. Antibiotics existed long before pollution did. But if that's the vision that someone has, they'll be like, oh yeah, sure, I'll go without straws for a little while. Sure, if that makes you happy, but that's where it ends because I'm not going to go any farther than that. I don't want to give up. I don't want to have to live in the mud and die at 30. And that's unable to imagine the world that actually lived. The world that brought us Buddha and Lao Tzu and Aristotle and Shakespeare and Bach and Jesus, Muhammad. You guys got me going. It's... I hope I don't sound too high horse. It's really, there's a glory, there's a, a fun and a freedom and a greater connection to family and, and community that it, it's rousing. I've never read a bunch of facts that got me there. And, you know, uh, just avoiding packaged food and then just going for a long time. The joy of eating an apple is really great. I can't overstate it. And that's what I'm sharing. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I feel very inspired and I'm sure that Brian and Leaky here are also inspired by a lot of what you shared. was just wondering if there are any last words that you'd like to leave before we close out on this episode. Well, I'm going to riff on you saying you were inspired. One of the things that got my podcast started was Seth himself being a guest on my podcast and I actually went up, I gambled and I said, I'll go to where you are. And I took the train up. He met me at the train station and he was coming from the farmer's market carrying a whole load of vegetables, like these vegetables and we recorded together at his place. And he's very infectious, you know, of like, I want to do that too. And very inspirational in that way. Also activating people. And so I'm going to see if I can activate people listening to this. On my podcast and in my leadership consulting training work, I like to work with very influential people bring them on the podcast to act on their environmental values so that others can say, oh, someone that I know is doing it. 
if people listening to me now know, you know, CEOs, especially of polluting companies, elected officials, star athletes, star singers, star actors, people with large followings, and they do not have to have experience or knowledge in environmental anything or sustainability, anything, most of them don't, then I'd love to have them as guests on the podcast. Or if they're in an organization and they're looking themselves to change that organization, they could use this mindset shift followed by continual improvement themselves. And would like a coach, put them in touch with me. And I'd love to have them as guests. I'd love to work with them and help them change so that they feel the joy that I do and share that. And, and that intrinsic motivation and that fun and freedom and joy and community and purpose. And that that's what leads us. Yeah, there's a sense of obligation, but really coming from intrinsic internal joy. I'd love to help them get there. And so if they go to joshuaspodak.com in the upper right corner is to contact and connect with me. And that's the best way to find me. That's awesome. That's awesome. Thank you so much. And I'm doing this inspired from Seth because he's so much, I want to do that too. Like, oh, I want to bring my friends in on it. He is an infectious personality and that power can be powerful. It's, it's that multiplier effect. Yeah. And, and isn't that what we need to get a lot of people started? I think that's exactly what we need. Thank you so much, Josh. Again, I'm sure that everyone listening to this has also been inspired and, and will be inspired, you know, listening after on. That's so great. And I feel like we should do this again. Right. So I'm looking forward to another conversation with you sometime. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today and see you next time. It's been wonderful for me. I hope I didn't talk too much. You've been listening to Carbon Sessions, a podcast with carbon conversations for every day with everyone from everywhere in the world. We'd love you to join the Carbon Sessions so you too can share your perspectives from wherever you are. This is a great way for our community to learn from your ideas and experiences, connect, and take action. If you want to add your voice to the conversation, go to thecarbonalmanac.org slash podcasts and sign up to be part of a future episode. This podcast is also part of the Carbon Almanac Network. For more information, to sign up for the emails, to join the movement, and to order your copy of the Carbon Almanac, go to thecarbonalmanac.org. Be sure to subscribe and join us here again as together we can change the world.